This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. And welcome to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Matt Caraccio, and once again, it is upon us. The summer seminar series is going to be rolling along this summer. Hopefully, the essence of the summer seminar series as it has been in the past is to bring you not only closer to the game, but closer to understanding the performance of those incredible athletes that we see on Saturdays and Sundays, just to understand their performance on the field. Who are they? How do they, how do they understand the game in front of them? This, just like any other profession that has professional development, this is our professional development as fans, as analysts, as coaches, an opportunity to reach out into the world of performance and reach out to those experts to help us give a better understanding of what we're seeing in front of us each and every week. So the seminar, summer seminar series this summer is going to be all about movement marvels, right? Now, movement marvels is this idea of trying to, again, encapsulate what it is for a player to be excellent at their respective position, but not only just to be excellent, but hopefully by looking through the lens of a particular player, we can get a little closer to that understanding as we move through the series. And I could think quite literally of nobody better than to kick off this incredible series than the movement Miyagi himself. I'm talking about Mr. Sean Mishka. Sean, as you know, is the co-director and co-owner of Emergence, which is an uh, really just an incredible opportunity for coaches and analysts to understand really the underpinnings, which is what the first course is called, the underpinnings of what it means to be a skillful mover in your respective sport, but also to be a better coach in your respective sport. Uh, Sean, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast. I, I mean, I could think of nobody better than to welcome on the show to unleash this series upon us. Oh, Matt, my friend, I, I could not be more honored to be here as well. I've waited the last calendar year, the 365 days from uh, last year's summer seminar series to uh, this year here in 2020 uh, for exactly this moment and exactly this day. So I, I stand and sit before you here humbly uh, because I could not be more honored to be exactly here uh, to speak about some of these ideas with you as well. So thank you, my friend. I, well, the pleasure is, again, completely ours. As I tell you all the time, you have been just an outstanding mentor for me, somebody that I've been able to talk to about these ideas, share with you. Sean, I, I, I just want to ask you as we begin to unfold, what have you been up to over the last 365 days? You know, we had the Sport Movement Skill Conference. Um, just give kind of listeners a quick update on where you've been the last calendar year and kind of the, the new endeavor. Again, this was only just a thought at the time last year, and now it's kind of come to a fruition now, this idea of the emergence movement kind of educational opportunity. What Can you give us a little idea of what that is before we get into our talk today? Yeah, sure, Kim, my friend. Um, I don't want to bore the listeners by any means, but obviously, like most other people out there, I've uh, been adapting, uh, you know, so as we expect from our athletes or as we look at this lens of, of sport movement skill and behavior within sport, um, I think this is a good testament to why we believe uh, in adapting to the degree that we do, right? Um, so I do want to give as many well wishes as I can for all of those listeners out there. Hopefully everyone and, and everyone's families are staying as safe as, as humanly possible and we're hopefully all trying to lock arms and getting through this together. 
And I think that's really what this whole year has been about for me as a, as a craftsman, right, as a sport movement specialist in trying to find ways to adapt, uh, not only with what the NFL landscape has sort of looked like for, for those listeners who haven't heard me before. Uh, that's essentially what I do in my day job, right? Um, I work with or consult for and advise uh, NFL football players, specifically in regards to their movement skill and in the learning environment designed to hopefully guide and facilitate enhanced movement skill for them out on a field on an NFL Sunday. And of course, this year, uh, as most people are very well aware, is a whole lot different than it's ever been before. And so managing that along with obviously some of our educational endeavors, specifically oriented around what we're doing with Emergence. Like you said, last year, uh, Emergence was sort of a twinkle in the eye of Tyler and I uh, at this point when we sat here 365 days ago. And because of people like yourself and, and other really devoted and committed professionals who are really just overly dedicated to trying to find these ideas and where they live and breathe within uh, whatever niche that we hold near and dear to our heart, whether you're a scout and an evaluator, whether you're a strength and conditioning or uh, performance coach, or whether you're a sport coach, athletic trainer, physical therapist, whatever, maybe just even a movement skill aficionado, trying to figure out where many of these ideas live and breathe within our crafts but also trying to guide everyone and facilitate us all to get closer to the truth. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And, and we still have a long ways to go, obviously, as you and I talk frequently about understanding how some of those concepts, uh, what we should absorb, what we should discard, and what we should try to aim to add. But I could not be more humbled, too, by the response of the community, uh, by the ways that people have grasped on to many of these concepts and how they have uh, sort of facilitated the evolve, the evolution and sort of these evolving dynamics of the ideas and allowed them to uh, really just get more staying power, number one. Uh, number two, find more practicality and application within our crafts, but also continue to streamline many of those messages. And all in all, hopefully, we, I think we've gotten closer to locking arms more fully and more effectively as well. And, and like you mentioned, with the Sport Movement Skill Conference that happened back in May, we had a bunch of committed professionals who came together, locked arms, adapted, and, and tried to make the best out of the situation that we had uh, as we tried to, again, um, take these ideas another step further. So I'm very anxious to chat with you today, specifically in regards to the topic. Uh, the Movement Marvel uh, idea was one that when you ran it past me, uh, obviously you couldn't see me through text, but I was grinning from ear to ear, much of like I am now, um, because I think it actually just really starts to encompass and embody where this framework or how many of these concepts within these frameworks that we do hold near and dear to our heart, that we do discuss as deeply as we do, how they can actually be utilized in practical ways which in our, within our niche. Well, I, I mean, first of all, to, to hit on a couple of quick points, I, I love that you said, first of all, going back to some of the things you've been up to all over the year, you have been facilitating. And I think that's something that's really incredible. If you're not familiar with Sean's work, I think that what's so incredible about the team in Emergence, 
also you yourself in terms of your blog, which is football beyond the stats. It's the idea of facilitating a lot of different entry points into a discussion about a topic that is very rich and very complex, but also very rewarding. So I think that that's been a tremendous asset to the community. And I could speak if you, if you have any questions about emergence and what underpinnings is all about, I'm happy to answer those questions. Of course, you can reach out to Sean. I would not tell you, I would tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, it should be one of the number one courses. If you want to get better in your field or your particular sport, it is the number one course in my mind that you need to immediately take. It will help you begin to ask better questions of yourself and your athletes. So kudos to you in facilitating all of those ideas and those opportunities for action, the team and emergence, as well as your continued success with the sport movement skill conference and everything it brings to the community, as well as the football beyond the stats, which does a weekly breakdown of some of the best movers in the game. So as we get into the topic this year, movement marvels, and again, like you said, I was really excited about this as a topic as well, because it gives us an opportunity to look at performance through a particular athlete, through their particular lens, and hopefully get closer to what it means to be a great player on the field. So Sean, you you already kind of elicited to me that it kind of excited you and it really brought about some ideas and things that were swirling in your mind that you wanted to share. So I don't want to, I don't want to bury the lead any further with regard to those movement marvels. You had a little bit of a deliberation and actually you decided to do something very interesting. Would you care to share with the listeners? What were you thinking when you heard movement marvels and where did your mind go? Yeah, and I certainly will, Matt, and it probably won't come as any shock or surprise to those who follow any of my work or who have heard our conversations over uh, the 2018 and then 2019 Summer Seminar Series. But of course, when I hear the idea of movement marvel, I sort of think about these mavericks of movement, right? Like these guys who are so skillfully connected to the problems that they face. You know, obviously you and I kind of talk about this problem solver paradigm really frequently, this form of life oriented around connecting to what one's problem is offering us within the sport. And so if we really start to think about movement skill from a problem solving perspective, and we really try to understand sport as a problem-solving activity. And the performer or the athlete, the player, uh, expressing themselves authentically, creatively through their movement in the way that they solve that problem, it kind of led me to this, you know, who are these marvels in the National Football League? Obviously, we could look at other sports and we could find the Cristiano Ronaldo's in soccer or um, you know, the Usain Bolts in track and field, the LeBron James or Michael Jordans of the NBA, and, and the list goes on and on, so on and so forth. But obviously our sport that is passionate to you and I, or that we are passionate about, is American football. And I wanted to at least kick this off as much as I possibly could with two individuals that I've spent more time studying than literally I have with any other players. And notice I said players and individuals because I couldn't settle on just one. Again, it probably doesn't come as a shock or surprise that I selected uh, none other than I think um, today's kind of litmus test of dexterity 
uh, throughout the course of National Football League history in the one and only Barry Sanders. And of course, uh, this is probably only going to be an audio version only, but in case it is video, you can see Barry Sanders, uh, Barry Sanders Hall of Fame helmet behind me, as well as then a Hall of Fame ticket, uh, as well as some other things across my office if I were to scan around. So it's not that I'm a super fan uh, of Barry himself. I'm a super fan of Barry's movement skills. So I thought it was a perfect entry point, like you said, to discuss movement problem solving from the perspective in the form of life of Barry Sanders. I couldn't stop there, though, as you could probably imagine, because you don't have to really look too much further. If you were to type in Barry Sanders movement uh, on Google, you're going to find a movement analysis from yours truly, uh, one of my still greater you know, claims to fame. But also you scroll down just a little bit or click on any video and you're actually going to see the name Saquon Barkley. And so I thought it was a perfect segue to look at Barry's movement skill and how it emerged from 1989 to 1999 for him in the National Football League. And then to make certain comparisons as well as sort of deviations with the now hopefully new torchbearer of movement skill in Saquon Barkley of the New York Giants. So two running backs, two individuals who've been compared off an awful lot to one another. And I want to sort of have a dialogue around where some of those similarities may exist, where there are significant differences, and how Saquon could potentially put himself truly in that next uh, torchbearer conversation along with Barry. So if we're going to talk about movement marvels, and we're going to talk about marvels of movement skill being oriented around problem solving, then we start to see these ideas of dexterity and this functionality between a player and his environment. We see this functionality and authenticity of his movement solutions. So I'm excited for where our conversation will lead. Um, and, and you can kind of take it away from there with whatever direction we want to go. Well, I mean, you actually provided the direction because you sent me uh, some information that I thought was astounding. And I'm just going to let the listeners in on a tweet that was sent out by CBS Sports uh, not too long ago. And it said in their first two seasons, only two players in NFL history have accumulated at least 20 total touchdowns, 3,400 yards from the line of scrimmage and in under 625 touches. And those two players are, of course, the people that we're going to be talking about today, Saquon Barkley and Barry Sanders. And now, Sean, you sent me this tweet because it, it kind of resonated with you and this discussion. In what way? Can you just kind of unpack why this kind of began to resonate with you? Obviously, they've accomplished many things on the ground in their first kind of two years that are incredible. But let's start there. What is it? that makes these two players, these two running backs, what makes them so impressive at their respective position? And that, of course, is sort of the million-dollar question, right? Because as my, my blog title or my blog uh, website name would imply, we must go deeper than the stats, right? We have to go beyond the stats, if you will, to truly look at how these individuals do solve problems. And I think too often, we do make this comparison between players. And I know you've heard me talk about this in the past. I try to prefer to prioritize each player's authenticity, each player's honesty, each player's uh, own form of life to shine through in who they are and how they solve those respective problems, right? I think too often we can go wrong 
in making comparisons and then trying to fit people into other people's molds, right? And I think that has sort of happened with Saquon and Barry to a certain degree, even though they're both highly skillful in their own right. But people don't have to look much further than seeing that one guy is five foot eight and two played at 203 pounds ish, give or take. And then the other one is six foot and 233 pounds. That should tell us right there from their anthropometric features that they probably solve problems in little different ways. Now, because they both are highly skillful in making people miss, I think too often that comparison is made between the two. And then, of course, there have been certain comparisons made because Saquon has spoken as many times as he had about Barry's influence on his own movement form of life. But I think we have, and the reason why I give this whole premise um, or preface to my answer uh, as we start to unpack what makes each guy do what they do is very important because if we try to, as evaluators, make certain comparisons or as coaches, we try to teach everyone to solve problems in the same way, we're probably going to rob somebody of who they are themselves as an individual. And I think we have to coach or evaluate to that person's best model of their movement problem solving process. I think that's the biggest thing first and foremost before we go into any conversation about this. And hopefully as you look into uh, the future episodes of the summer seminar series, or when you see this next year when the combine in the NFL draft comes out, be careful with comparisons because sometimes we rob somebody of what makes them special. And I think what we do find is certain similarities for sure. Um, they both have certain global intentions often when they approach a respective movement problem that may unfold or behave in a similar fashion. In my opinion, they both do have transcendent generational type of movement skill. And what I mean by that is it's transcendent in that it can apply across generations. If Barry played today in 2020 or Saquon played when Barry did in 1989, I believe that they both would have been highly successful in each other's generations. And the reason why they do that, because that doesn't apply for all players at all positions, as you and I well know. The reason why they do that is they just have the ability to find ways to solve problems that no one else can. And so when they're faced with certain problems, even if we take the elite at their respective positions, we find that there's almost no comparison when we look at the problem that they're being faced with. So there are plenty of problems. Obviously, Barry is sort of this definition of dexterity that I already alluded to. For those listeners who are, are hearing this, me use these terms for the first time, the idea of dexterity within movement skill, as Matt, you well know, from Nikolai Bernstein in 1967 and then beyond, was the ability to solve any emerging movement problem in any situation and under any condition. And so if we really start to look at that, Barry is our best example of this, at least in my perspective. Um, he existed in what I call the deep waters of complexity, where there was this numerous interacting component parts in an almost unsolvable problem presented to him but somehow, obviously, as we've seen through all the highlights that we could just punch in and find, Barry finds a way through it where other people, I believe, could not. Saquon has a similar uh, characteristic within his movement skill set, right? 
I believe that both guys are able to do this because of the abundance and diversity within their movement toolboxes. I'm talking finding themselves in a wide variety of strategies across a wide variety of patterns across the that find themselves then in a wide variety of positions. Some of these positions, if we were to take a screenshot when Barry's making a cut or Saquon's hurdling somebody and coming down, we're going to find that they're in an incorrect or unorthodox biomechanical position at times. And yet those guys find ways to utilize those strategies as a creative, emergent, authentic movement strategy or solution. And those are the main similarities, I believe, that when people look at the eye test of watching Saquon Barkley and try to make comparisons to who does this guy look like, even if he is six foot and 233 pounds and Barry was 5'8 and 203 pounds, we make this immediate comparison because we, we see this almost like virtuosity between their movement skill where it looks like they became one with the problem and solved it in a nuanced way that no one else could really see. They found affordances, they accepted affordances or opportunities within that problem to solve it in a way that maybe people wouldn't uh, categorize as technically sound or, or maybe that would advise to solve it. In, you know, And I think that's what we find with movement marvels, if you will. They make you scratch your head at certain times because they look so connected with that problem that you're like, I never would have seen that opening or opportunity. Well, and that's because I'm Sean Mishka and I'm not Saquon Barkley or Barry Sanders, right? And I think then we see some other things, Matt, and then I certainly want to be able to get your input here mm -hmm. uh, before we go even deeper, but we see some other things that are similarities between the two. Obviously, both of their names are synonymous with home run hitting, right? They see these openings, they see these gaps that other people do not, and they accept them without hesitation. And when they do, they hit a special gas pedal that allows them to accept that affordance, but do something in an effective way through it or because of it. And then we also see that abundance of that movement skill or the abundance of those movement strategies allow them to create and improvise in ways that other people would not. Again, they don't create and improvise in the same way as each other, but they create and improvise in a, as a global intention or aim when they find themselves in respective problems. And I think those are the things that connect them. That's why they're sort of kindred spirits then in this way. And if, you, if anybody wants to go out and listen or go back and listen to their top 100 or not, excuse me, not top 100, their uh, NFL 100th anniversary episode that they did together last year where they're watching film together you see that there's uniqueness to their own respective personalities and form of life. Barry is sort of this super humble, uh, very uh, nonchalant, but very serious, uh, still equally as passionate about the game of football and about solving problems. You can see the kind of twinkle in his eye, right? When he's talking about some of the ways that he aimed to solve problems that were presented to him, but versus you know, Saquon being this more outlandish, this big ball of energy, this like sort of super ball that's released into a room. So their movement uh, form of life, if you will, is very different, but yet they still have similar intentions that sort of guide them to along, uh, to along this path of solving problems in their own unique way. 
but I believe that everything that I just tried to talk about and unpack about their similarities actually shows us why either one of them could potentially work in any system. You know, I've heard uh, offensive coordinators of the past sort of joke about running an offense with Barry Sanders. You know, Wayne Fonts himself, who was Barry's coach for the majority of Barry's career, said something along the lines of like, we just had, uh, you know, one or two plays that we ran. Barry just made them look different because he was finding different holes and different opportunities. He actually says that somewhat verbatim to a certain degree. It was sort of like we have two plays, Barry left and Barry right. You know, and, and and we just allow him to kind of find and go look for that space and, and to create in his own ways. And I think that's where we find those guys at their best, where they're not handcuffed or they're not shackled by some of these tactical strategies that maybe some coaches would impose upon them and maybe rob their authenticity from them. So I know I just said whole, uh, I just said a mouthful. Um, I think I probably also alluded to some things on what we might be able to talk about later on and what makes them different from one another. Uh, but what was going on in your head as, as I was sort of going over those things as well as what other things do you see um, that, that are similarities between the two? No, I mean, listen, there were a lot of things that you said that I think are really impressive. I mean, because I think the biggest thing that you take away from this is the information that's available to them, right? The landscape that is the playing field, the game, you know, it's almost as if they are not going to surf the wave the same way, but they understand the wave and its nature. Nonetheless, you know, they understand that when they're running the football, they understand that there is going to be, you know, constant chaotic, crazy types of things happening in front of them. But they also understand that they trust the sol- the process of solving the problem to allow them to authentically find their own solution. They're not going to solve the problem the same way any the same way twice or three times, but they're comfortable in being uncomfortable. They understand that there's not going to be one solution or another. And and my question to you is is that again playing devil's advocate in the world of trying to reduce players of this complexity to simple ideas. Some people might say is, well, they, they, they're very good at recognizing patterns. Would you say that that is a fair statement or an incomplete thought? And I'm kind of leading you one way or the other, not necessarily saying it's one or the other, but I do think there's kind of two ways. Either you agree with it or it might be partially true, but there's more to it. How would you, are they good at just recognizing patterns? Can we really just reduce them to pattern recognition animals or is there more going on there? Um, not surprisingly, obviously, I, th- I think there's a lot more going on there. In fact, certainly I believe that they are good at understanding the nuances specifically of patterns uh, of, say, an opponent, for example. Uh, but to unpack maybe even some of where Saquon's weaknesses or room or areas for growth are, if I were to say where or how his movement skill set should or could evolve heading forward, I believe that Saquon's perceptual sensitivity to some of those interactions from an opponent or what space affords him, how certain quote-unquote patterns on the problem's end uh, would behavior unfold, I believe that this is where Saquon's growth um, potential actually exists and lies. And the reason why I say that is because if we look at Barry, we know that his perceptual attunement in his connection to the problem. So the attunement word is just one that says how he's tuning in 
to what an uh, what problems the opportunities uh, are going to give him or, or afford him, right? Or excuse me, what problems uh, and opportunities um, kind of give or offer for him? So when we look at this, we think about Barry just had like sort of this understanding of, this knowledge of the information, what affordances exist there and what was being specified to him based on his action capabilities. He said it in his top 100 video that I um, actually misquoted a little bit earlier where he says, um, my sole objective was just to perfect the skill of making people miss. And he goes on to saying, I just had to turn off my brain in certain ways and just act or react and to do it impulsively based on turning off my brain by then just trying to globally intend to make this guy miss. And I think that's really rather telling. But what we found when we watch Barry's movement skills, sort of on a macroscope or a microscope, right? We see that he has the ability to sort of solve these local nested, more micro problems but all being done in reference to the bigger problem. So we often see him setting guys up to solve the next problem as opposed to the one that we really see this interaction happening right in front of us. And I've, wrote, I've written a lot down on Barry's interviews and certain anecdotes over the years. And it's kind of funny that within that year 100 annual video between Saquon and Barry, he says, even when you make someone miss, you always have to be looking for the next guy because there's always another guy coming. And that tells us something right there about his intentions, his cognitions, and how those intentions and those cognitions, those thought processes were sort of scaffolding his perception action coupling to a certain degree. He was always ready to perceive or pick up and detect information from the next guy. Well, as you already said, they're not going to solve the problem in the same way two times because that problem is never going to behave in the same way uh, from rep to rep. And that's, of course, the complexity of sport movement behavior. But when we can acknowledge that Barry sort of approached his problem solving process in this way, and then we sometimes see Saquon, especially because both of them, like I already made the mention, are sort of known for this home run hitting ability, right? It can be you know, famine, 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 feast, right? It's two, four, negative three, 60, right? It's, it's can be calm. And then all of a sudden, bang, there's a storm with either one of them. But oftentimes we see Saquon, if we were going to really criticize him, and I did criticize him somewhat in 2018 in my draft preview form. And then again, in 2018, when I gave him my mover of the year on football beyond the stats, I kind of talked about how much potential he has based on that abundance of movement strategies that we talked about. But because of his still lack of sensitivity and attunement, his lack of connection in tuning into what the problem was really giving him, too often we find him still looking to make moves for moves sake when it doesn't actually fit the constraints of the problem. And I believe that he sometimes gets ahead of himself a little bit, almost thinking like in his head, he's almost overthinking and not actually really seeing or connecting, perceiving how that problem is dynamically unfolding continuously in front of him. 
And so I think when we talk about that whole idea of pattern recognition, yeah, Barry certainly could maybe, um, you know, if we were to make that argument for information processing and he's just recalling some cue or stimuli, but think about the best plays that Barry Sanders ever put on highlights. Every problem, we have to respect it. You and I talk frequently behind the scenes about respecting the problem and about the uniqueness of that context. That context is going to flow into that content or the content is going to flow from that context. And if we look at those highlights of Barry Sanders, I would argue we don't see problems that look the same, even highlight to highlight, rep to rep, right? And so we see just his true virtuosity. We see his true mastery. We see his true connection to what a problem was offering him. Like I said, um, what was afforded to him based on the peculiarity of that unique problem. Um, Let me me ask you this. I want to ask you this because I I think listeners out there and and I'm, and the listeners might be thinking to myself, okay, so you're saying that he, he takes advantage of these opportunities. And yet we could say that at times, you know, there, there are moments where there, there are opportunities that Saquon may delay or not take the invitation to because, you know, maybe, um, maybe his intentions might be different or, or those intentions are constantly shifting as time goes on. My, my question is, is that, there might be listeners saying to you, okay, so I, I get that Barry will take the opportunities that are available to him. But let me ask you this. In all of your years of studying the NFL game, what structures opportunities for a running back? Like what are some of those? Because we know that information and we know um, different types of information that are available to the athlete in the game are going to kind of constrain their opportunities for action. And we know that their physical capabilities are going to play a big role in those invitations that they accept. But what role do what role and what structures actually create the other side of the equation? Because I think that we we get so focused on, well, Barry was just good because look at how physically gifted he was. But yet we know the problem is shaping those physical gifts in some way. And I think if a listener is saying here is might be listening to this and saying, okay, so what in the environment might be shaping those opportunities for the action what are some of the things that are shaping both saquon and barry's and and in there maybe you can parse out what makes them a little different because you were alluding to it earlier with what opportunities saquon might delay or not take the invitation to whereas barry would be welcoming of just going with the flow so to speak so i'm curious from that side of the equation outside of their physical gifts, outside of what their physical gifts may shape in terms of opportunities, what other elements are shaping those opportunities that they are connecting to potentially? Because we don't know for sure, but what could they be connecting to? What things might we be need to be more resonant of when we're watching them unfold? I love the question, Matt, because your, your question sort of highlights that respect of the problem again, right? That disposition of the problem. And when we think about the disposition of the problem, that's why, like you alluded to in your question or as your lead up to the question about this role of information, the nature of the information that that performer could connect to, meaning things that are going to be more specifying, such as distance or space between oneself in, in the obstacles in one's world. And when I say obstacles, I don't just mean opponents. 
your teammates certainly um, make up those obstacles as well. And then, of course, within that space, it's this spatial and temporal relationship between oneself and the opportunities or this landscape of affordances, right? This landscape of invitation. And so for those out there who might not be used to this verbiage, don't get lost in the weeds. They're just opportunities that exist that allow a performer to accept or reject and make a decision in an emergent way based on what he or she is perceiving as well as then how he or she could potentially act. So if they find a gap within space, maybe between two defenders or while they're reading um, the defender and their teammate, their teammate who has a blocking shared affordance with them, they are trying to perceive moment by moment if they can attack and hit that gap based on their action capabilities and their speed qualities, or if they have to look for or aim to perceive a different affordance that could still allow them to act and achieve their global intention, which is either to pick up a first down or as many yards as they can or to score or to catch a ball or whatever it may be. And so I think it's important that we don't get lost in the weeds per se, but yet on the same token, we can use this framework to investigate those problem and solution dynamics. So how that system, how that problem and that solver are evolving over time, how the two dispositions, myself as a mover and my perceptions and my intentions and my actions are truly interacting with the unfolding dynamic problem and the changes in the state of the organization between that problem and that performer or that athlete and how they have this reciprocal mutual relationship with one another. As the problem changes, so do the opportunities that me as a player or as a performer or Barrier Saquon could elect to accept or discard those respective opportunities as well. And of course, how someone solves problems in the first quarter is going to differ significantly potentially as to how they will solve problems in the fourth quarter and how they solve those problems on a rainy uh, environment will be different than when they're in a dome and so on and so forth, right? We have to look across situations and across conditions to actually respect the problem in the level of complexity, but also contextually what it means and stands for and how it could be potentially speaking to that respective player. And so I think that's what we find in the differences between Barry and Saquon, for example. Obviously, I've already highlighted Barry's dexterity or his ability to solve those problems across situations or conditions. Obviously, we all know that Barry had the ability to solve problems that other people could not. Um, he was able to do more or to make more out of nothing than any other uh, player ever could. It didn't matter what opponent was in front of him. It didn't matter how much or how deep the waters of complexity were, how many bodies were in a confined space. It always seemed like Barry was just going and moving, like Bruce Lee would say, like water, right? He was just adapting and flowing along with what the problem was offering him. And so Barry then had this connection and this true movement coupling to that information that he was connecting to. This is where we find Saquon, even though he still has that abundance of movement strategies and abundance of movement patterns and skills to resort to, it's not still 
uh, to the point where it's skillfully matched, it's functionally matched to meet the needs of the unfolding problem, right? So as information and energy changes, as the disposition of the problem changes, Saquon still is a little fixed and frozen because he can't connect to the complexity of information, the abundance of information that's out there. He sometimes still has this intention, like I want to execute this move. So sometimes we see him make a move like a spin or a jump cut, or he'll just juke somebody or give somebody a little faint or fake. And it doesn't actually match what's unfolding within that respective problem, right? Or sometimes I believe that, especially in this last year, we saw Saquon handcuffed a little bit. And I don't hate, you know, I hate to knock on any tactical strategies implied or imposed by coaches. But I think the Pat Shermer idea from his rookie year, where Saquon was told over and over and over again, like, we still want you to get the dirty yards. Like, we still want you to get the two, three, four yard gains. We still want you to um, take what's there. You know, we, we still want those to get ahead of the chain, so on and so forth. I think last year in 2019, we saw it handcuff Saquon's perceptions and intentions a little bit. And we saw him not accept some opportunities to run into open space that maybe he would have in 2018 or certainly in the ways that he wants to gravitate to. And so we see the importance of all the confluence of informational constraints, not only the one that exists there that we can investigate from a movement behavior standpoint, but the ones that are acting upon that performer as well, coaches, fans, um, down in distance, all of these types of extraneous factors that must be analyzed to determine how they may attempt to connect to that problem and solve it. And so I think that's where we start to see the differences as well, Matt, and why uh, Saquon has all the potential in the world, but we just have to see him have an opportunity to allow his movement skill to actually evolve in these ways for him to authentically and creatively be who it is that he feels that God intended him to be as a mover and for him to perceive things and organize his whole human movement systems degrees of freedom in his own unique way. See what he, what he sees, let that resonate to him. Tune into that accordingly. Find his own opportunities or affordances for action and then accept them accordingly and act and organize his own motor system degrees of freedom, his own strategies, his own patterns in a way that fits it, that problem based on who he is. So I know that's kind of a mouthful there, but we see too often, and I would implore listeners to go back and watch Saquon from 2019 and maybe even compare it to 2018 to a certain degree, even though I still believed when he entered the draft that he sometimes still made moves for moves sake, that he still didn't have that perceptual connection. He often will fixate on the immediate defender. We talked before about Barry being able to see not only wider, but also longer. It wasn't just about the immediate defender. He was able to get the detail, the fine detail as Gibson would say, he was able to get that resolution of that, which what he needed right in front of him but his perception was wider and longer and fuller, Barry that is. Saquon often gets fixated and focused just on that immediate defender in front of him because he just wants to make that guy miss so badly, right? But to Barry's advice for him on that NFL 100th uh, episode or 100th year episode that they did together last year in October, Barry kind of nudges him in that direction and says like, there's always somebody coming. Like you cannot 
like almost relish in your own success or your own masterpiece of this guy that you may miss because there's another guy that you have to concern yourself with. So that's why in traffic, we often see Barry even, or excuse me, Saquon even lose control of this spatial relationship between himself and either an opponent or his teammate. He loses that relationship. He runs into his um, blocker really frequently. He actually gets too close at times to that immediate defender, knowing that he has almost that guy on a string yet because he can make that guy miss in a one-on-one situation more often than not, right? That's another thing that makes these two guys similar to one another. But the difference between he and Barry is Barry's making that guy miss, but he's still focused and attuned and sensitive to what else is unfolding behind and around that opponent, whereas Saquon still has not. In order for him to go to that next spot and that next level, I believe that's how his movement skill could actually and should actually evolve. Well, I mean, things that just immediately jump out at me is – First of all, going back to when you were talking about Barry and talking about, you know, the problems, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I've been trying to work through through many of our discussions is allowing the problem to be more of my guide when I'm trying to evaluate a player. In other words, taking my eyes off the player and the ball and focusing more on the problem as it evolves over time and asking myself, so what's going on here? from a, from a landscape in the environment, the game, what's happening, you know, Oh, okay. There's a, there's, there's these two players approaching at this trajectory relative to the sideline. There are these gaps of passability and those gaps of passability. Um, Oh, there's pursuit from behind and there's what's going on with regards to the play. First and foremost, what scheme are they in? What are they tactically trying to do? And then as it unfolds, what is, what opportunity or what, what are they trying to constrain? on the on the opponent right so I'm, I'm watching it from that standpoint looking more at the problem and what happens with a guy like barry is you're almost beginning to try to understand what is it that he, what situations is he exceptionally good at handling and which situations may he struggle in like you just talked about it in somewhat of detail when you talked about saquon and when you get to barry there's not a lot of situations where he hasn't optimized his opportunities for action in that given situation. So what I mean by that is going back to Bernstein, I'm trying to look at things through this lens of, you know, let's look at a problem level at the solution level. And let's say, did he solve it, you know, correctly, quickly, rationally, and resourcefully? Well, when you watch Barry, he's always trying to, he's always correctly solving the problem. He's usually doing it in a very rational way. He's very quick because his movements are successive, which shows, to your point, his ability to see not only the first level, but the second level and beyond. And you also see some resourcefulness, right? You see that resourcefulness because he's creating different types. He's emer- different types of body angles are leading to different types of solutions. But yet when you watch other players, and to your point about Saquon, they may still solve the problem correctly and get yards, and they may still do something that helps the team, but they may not do it in a very resourceful way. They may not do it in a very rational way. To your point, movement for movement's sake, I love that you drew it back to perception because that's the idea, right? I mean, he's he's searching the landscape in that moment, whereas Barry's not searching anymore. He's so attuned 
to the different types of information available to him. He's so attuned to the trajectory of the defender on the first level and the second level that he doesn't need to gather any more information. He already knows in his mind with just that slice of information what types of opportunities may unfold for him. And all he's going to do is he's just going to allow each one of them to feed, sort of like a meandering river into little type of channels. He'll just let it feed organically into whatever's going to come next. But it's almost like there's an array of opportunities that display in front of Barry's eyes, whereas Saquon is like, you know what? I got to make this guy miss. And once I can make this guy miss, then I'll handle the next guy. So to your point about the depth and breadth at which they are attuned to the environment in front of them, that hesitancy is not a bad thing. It's just a an indicator of what could be more in his problem-solving process. It, am I making sense, Sean? Because I don't know if that goes in the right direction, but it just – it, it, this is where I think evaluating players and looking at them as, well, he's this type of player, that type of player, we may lose what they could be yeah, rather I, than what they are right now. I think, I think you are hitting the nail on the head there. I've often said in my reports on Barry, uh, both out there for the public as well as in sort of behind the scenes, is, is he just doesn't always have the ability to tune into the information on how things are unfolding or changing and especially with how quickly they do in the National Football League, right? So he has a certain lack of coordination and control between his perceptions, his intentions, and his actions to a certain degree. He just can't organize the degrees of freedom to most functionally match the way that the problem is unfolding. And so I think that's where you see certain disorder uh, with how un- how it does unfold for him at certain times, you know, like you can see him he, a lot of times, like he's almost like backtracking in his head when he gets taken down, like, oh, I know it was there. I missed it. I was just a split second too late. And of course, that's the nature of the beast for a lot of players, of course. But of course, I also believe that that could be trained to a certain degree as well. Like his evolution of his movement skill will happen, I believe, through more exposure to these complex, more complex problems across these wider variety of situations. And as long as he's allowed the opportunity in the room to be able to grow and evolve in those ways, to maybe solve that problem in his own unique, authentic fashion, I believe that's where we're going to see his movement skills swell as well. You know, when you talk about, it's really interesting because I've often battled myself in my own brainstorming thoughts oriented around Barry. Like I, you've heard me say before, and I've even said it across the course of the last hour here, that I believe that Barry is the most skillfully dexterous mover our sport has ever seen. But what happened when Barry didn't solve the problem? You know, because not only did he average five yards a carry and had 15,000 yards over the course of his career, you know, he averaged uh, like a hundred and a uh, red around a hundred yards per game. But he yep. also lost the most amount of yards in NFL history. People will typically often point back to um, the fact that his offensive line kind of stunk, right? But where were there times that his perceptions, his cognitions, and his actions, much of like what we're sort of being um, somewhat critical of Saquon at right now or on, could there have been times that Barry didn't solve the problem as functionally as he could or needed to, right? And of course, many people think about Barry and we put him in this high esteem, as do I, obviously, which is pretty indicated by uh, the the jerseys and the pictures around my office, as well as in the helmet that's right behind my head that you can see. 
But when we really start to look at when did his perception break down or when his intentions broke down or when he couldn't find or organize and compose the right movement solution to that problem, not every um, solver, not every mover has a solution to every problem, right? Even the great Barry Sanders. And I think there's where is a true learning test for us, where it's a true learning opportunity and thought experiment for us. In fact, I wrote down even leading up to this conversation because I'm so stoked to talk to you about this. There was a question that I'm often asked that has been like this debate in, you know, barbershops and bars and, and among football pundits and in and, and my players and myself, right? Where everybody always asks this question. Um, if Barry would have had a better offensive line, would he have broken the rushing record instead of Emmett Smith? Like if he would have had the Dallas Cowboys offensive line, would he have set an untouchable record? And I have a hypothesis on this, which may come what somewhat uh, contradictory to some people's beliefs, but I wanted to pose it to you first, if I could flip the table or flip mm -hmm. the script just for a moment to hear what your thoughts are on there. And then uh, we can obviously sh certainly share some back and forth around it as well. Well, my, my, my initial answer is, we'll never know. And the reason why I say we'll never know is not just because it won't happen in reality, but because to the degree with which the line created intentions for him to act, we'll never know to what degree that actually played into who he was as a mover. So in other words, I, I think very, I think about a recent rookie this year, um, AJ Dillon and AJ Dillon, uh, was, you know, excuse me, not AJ Dillon, Cam Akers, excuse me, from Florida State. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will, will hear about Cam Akers. It's very well known that it was a very tough offensive line. That offensive line at FSU was a was not very cohesive. And there were a lot of things that were always kind of leaking through, defenders, attackers. And Cam Akers was always somebody that people are saying, well, you know, he ha he hasn't really evolved to where he needs to be. Um, but he, he played behind the hard line and, and we'll see what happens, but you know, this is who he is coming out of, you know, coming out of college. It was a bad offensive line. And, and that was, you know, who is he going to be in the NFL? We don't know. And I understand that same thing could be said about Barry, how, who you play with creates or shapes those intentions. He says, make people miss. He might have been saying something very different. I wonder if you asked Emmett Smith, was it about making people miss Emmett? Or was it about making sure that you worked cohesively with your blockers? I wonder if they would say different things. Because to one degree, when you were talking earlier about intentions, and I wrote this down because you talked about local and global, I wonder if Barry just found the perfect resonant frequency for himself in the world of being a running back. It was, I got to make people miss. And that just kind of truncated everything he needed to know in a given moment. So even if I'm running an inside zone or a counter or a gap on the outside, I know I'm going to make people miss. I know that I'm going to have this tactical and strategic plan in front of me that will create opportunities for action, but I'm going to reduce all of my thoughts down to just make people miss. Whereas Emmett might have said, hey, you know what? follow your lead blocker because after that I can create from there. So the, who knows? I think to, to say that he would have been an untouchable record holder 
if he were to run behind the Dallas offensive line, I think is a little short-sighted. I don't think it respects who he necessarily was as a player. I think we have to understand that his intentions and why he ran for the yards he did were as much part of the team he was on as it was who he was as an authentic mover, because I would argue that they're inseparable to begin with. And I wonder if we just need to not table that question, but also say, rather say this, Hey, he, given the circumstances he was in, given the problems he was presented, find me the ones that he solved incorrectly. And let's compare that chart with every other player in the NFL. So if we were able to really classify the complexity of a problem to its highest degree, you find me the number of problems that Barry solved wrong, and I'll put his successful number against anybody else's at his position. So I don't know if he would have had an untouchable record. I don't even know what his yards would have been. Somebody said this recently about Heinz Ward versus uh, Antonio Brown. Who was better? Well, I, I mean, who was more talented? Well, I, I think we should be asking who was more skilled. Really, who was more skilled? Who was able to functionally understand, adapt, and behave with the respective problems that they faced on the field? If we could really, really, really quantify that, then I think we're getting at who the better player was. And I think that's what I would say to a person who wants to talk about Barry behind Dallas. I would be like, you're changing, you're changing the equation completely. You know, do I think he would have been functional behind that line? Yeah, I think he would have been functional. Would he have broken the record? Maybe not, because maybe with a great line, maybe the quarterback would have been throwing more. Who knows? So, I mean, I'm not sure I would be able to answer, would he break the record? I think what we need to ask is, was he, like you said, the most dynamic, the most successful, the most the biggest movement marvel our game has seen. And I I think he was because I think if you look at the problems he was asked to solve, I think more often than not, he optimized the solution in that moment to the best of his ability. And I'm not sure every player has done that. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm stoked to hear you answer it in the way that you did, my friend, and I shouldn't be surprised at all because it actually encompasses many of the ways that I have answered that question as well. If we're going to look at the movement Marvel, we have to think about how that phenomenon emerged, right? Like if we think about Barry as a movement problem solver, his movement skill and his dexterity within it, we have to think about what it emerged from and within. And obviously it was in connection to the problems that he needed to solve. And he needed to solve those problems because of the confluence of constraints. You change any of those constraints and it's no longer the same problem. And if it's no longer the same problem, it's probably not the same movement skill that's being organized as well. And it might not be the same movement skill set or the same production or performance that would emerge either. And so typically people are, are you know, sort of taken back a little bit when they hear me answer it in that way that I say, I believe that it was the, the, the Detroit Lions offensive line. And maybe the way that they did work, obviously they still are at an NFL level, but it not necessarily matched ever to the to the degree or the success or the functional equivalence, if you will, to that of the Dallas Cowboys or many other uh, proficient or more competent offensive lines. But 
I actually made this argument then or had a discussion around this in regards to Saquon because people will make that connection, right? Like people have already been, there's already been some rumblings in probably New Jersey and, and across the national media in regards to like, are we going to waste the talent and the skill of Saquon Barkley? And is it going to happen because of play calling or is it going to happen because of offensive line play or the pieces and parts around him? And I believe that if he just gets in this functional state in the same way as what Barry did, he will have the same opportunities afforded to him that Barry did as well, which is to allow this movement skill to emerge from this confluence of those unique or peculiar constraints. Those individuals that are going to all come together, obviously it's 11 on 11. It's not a one versus one game. You know, it's not like a mixed martial arts or some or tennis or something of that nature where it's just you versus another. Obviously it's you with others versus another with others. And those others are always changing. And the interactions and the relationships between them are always changing as well. So I think um, you answered it really poignantly and you answered it really eloquently as well because I believe that that's a way that most people aren't actually thinking about it, that Barry's movement skill set actually did emerge from the problem that he was presented with and the opportunities, i.e. affordances, that he was presented with as well because of it. Well, you know what, though? but And, and I would say is, is like if we really did have a way of quantifying the complexity of the problem itself, to your point, what you implored us to do last year, which was to really begin to look at the problem – if you spend your time looking at the complexity of the problem more, you might be able to say, wow, there's just not many problems this guy can't solve. Or there's not many problems that he's not optimizing his own movement skill to. I think that should be your kind of uh, – that should be almost your scoring system if we want to score guys because that to me is built at least on skill and the interacting constraints of the entirety of the situation and not just on the player doing something. But like Duarte Arugio has said and Keith Davidson said, as you have said, it's about the relationship, the interactions between the player and the moment that should be the focus of the analysis and not either or. But I would argue that you're you imploring us to look at the the problem is to get us out of that kind of that asymmetrical view of the player being the sole kind of provider of the information and the action. It's it's imploring us to say, but look at the problem and the information it's giving them. And now look at what they're listening to or not listening to, to use the metaphor of turning the volume up or turning it down in terms of opportunities. What are they listening to? And I think when you look at that and you say, let their actions be their statements of their perceptions, then let's see what they do. Let's see that. Let that, let that be the scoring system and not some arbitrary, well, he's he's got more burst on interior runs than Saquon because I think when we reduce it I think there listen I know that people there's a rich um understanding behind what burst is and not and and I get that and there's people that can I know that the 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 I I guess I want to say the five word summary or the 140 character world we live in has really truncated us to being very 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 we talked about it off air Giving an elevator pitch for everything is very challenging when you're talking about complexity. So I understand why those words exist, but I I want us to at least say to ourselves, that's not the end of the story. 
And that shouldn't be the end of the story in any way, shape, or form. We should be looking at the interactions as really the, the, the scoring system that we're trying to create in any way, shape, or form, if we're trying to create a scoring system in any way, of course. But I, I think the interactions should be what we're evaluating the players on. And whether or not they, for them, to the best of our knowledge, are optimizing their movement for themselves. And that's, I mean, I don't know if I'm, now I'm babbling. So to everybody listening out there, if I geeked out for five seconds, I apologize. Um, Sean, I apologize to you. So that, that was my, that was where my mind went when we were talking about that. No, I think really what you're talking about is exactly that, which what I implored listeners last year, like to, to your mention or to your point taking our scale or scope of analysis and renewing it and revisiting it around the performer slash player slash athlete, right? That human mover and how they interact in a mutual reciprocal way with the environment and its problems, right? Like those problem and solution dynamics, that is where our scope and scale of analysis must remain. If we focus or fixate on just the player, and just the player's qualities, we miss a whole wealth, a whole breadth of, of really what's happening unfolding there. That context will create the content. And if that content is really what we're trying to assess and, and analyze, I think whether, again, you're an evaluator or whether you're a coach, that content is what we're trying to either evaluate or what we're trying to shape. But we have to respect the problem first and foremost and then try to assess how that individual is fitting within that environment and the problems that it presents. You know, and, and, and then if we're going to try to, from a coaching perspective, if we're going to try to assist that player in increased or enhanced movement skill acquisition, we have to look at those problems that he or she has issues in solving. What problems don't they have the ability to solve? If we really talk about Barry versus Saquon and we talk about Barry existing in this depth of the waters, these deep waters of complexity, we realize that Barry just was so frequently um, comfortable, like being taken to that place of his challenge point where he knew he had to be like water and adapt. He had to go in that place where he would just go with the flow. He would have to find new opportunities where I believe if we've give Saquon enough opportunity to do that, enough exposures and enough experiences, whether it's in game exposure, but more preferably, at least in my opinion, in a training or practice environment setting, that we were to take him there, allow him to struggle and make mistakes a little bit we would start to find he would also be able to compose. He would also be able to coordinate. He would also be able to control his movement solutions in new, more finely sensitive and more intentional or more adaptive ways. Well, you know, and that leads me to a point um, where I, I want to echo that because I think I, I heard it recently. And I think this is something that really resonates when you were speaking is let the problem reveal the skill. Let the problem reveal the skill. Stop watching the player themselves, but let the problem reveal the player's skill. And it goes back to, you know, again, to me, that idea of you can have a player almost, this is why, you know, for me, and, and you're very familiar with what I'm trying to accomplish in evaluation is looking through the lenses of the traditional kind of idea of dexterity, looking at 
correctly, quickly, rationally, and resourcefully with a way of assigning partial credit to a player, like giving them the opportunity. Well, hey, listen, you solved it correctly. You gained yards. You you definitely did that. You were quick. You were quick-witted. You were able to adapt quickly to a player's approach to you. You were able to show that you were able to move very uh, – you had like a, a resolution, a decision to make, and you decided very quickly what to do. Um there was a little bit of an issue in terms of your rationality. It wasn't the most economical. I saw you dance a little bit before you actually made your decision. You know, does that mean you were perceptually connected, not connected? Maybe that's something in training or in future exposures I need to explore to get more clarity. So it's it's like, I, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of what I'm feeling when I think about watching a player and their interaction in the game is looking at it as, you know, when I think about classes that I teach, I give them a problem, there's an elegant solution, and then there could be a solution that's more roundabout. They both got the answer, but we're talking about which one is more elegant or dexterous and which one is not. Which one you could refine it by, hey, you know what, come over here, let me show you something. If you would have used this equation, you would have gotten that result quicker, which would have gotten you the answer a little bit faster. So I'm just drawing your attention to it. So you're aware to the next time. And then you might see students that automatically go there. So I wonder when you were talking about Saquon and we're talking about Barry, Barry's finding that elegant solution more often than not. And Saquon is finding a solution, but it's not always the most elegant one. And it, and I wonder as we move forward into this upcoming season and upcoming year, you know, how will the tasks of last year for Saquon get the tough yards? How will that how will that evolve his own intentions moving forward? I'm very interested to see what the 2020 version of him will look like, because to your point, everything must play a role. No, I I think you hit the nail on the head there. Once again, my friend, I think, you know, I know I made the mention earlier in regards to both of them being this home run hitter and oftentimes coaches occasionally try uh, to kind of, again, fit them into their respective containers, right? Take what's there, get what's there, get go where the play intended for you to go, so on and so forth. But when we talk about movement marbles and the most skillful, resourceful performers, the question that I always ask to coaches, tactical coaches, football coaches, is even if they don't always take what's there, do we always want them to? <laughs> Like there are times that both Barry on across his highlights as well as Saquon solve problems in ways that most coaches wouldn't draw it up. They wouldn't write it up that way. And I would offer that that was just them being them. That was them accepting affordances or perceiving affordances in ways that other people can't even fathom because of their action capabilities, especially Saquon. Yes, Barry was athletically gifted, obviously. But from a physical characteristic and quality standpoint, speed, power, explosiveness, size, so on and so forth, Saquon is almost without equal at the position. And so for him to be taken into this place and put into a container is sort of like what Bruce Lee always talked about with what uh, you know more traditional martial arts did or do to many skilled martial artists. They put them into a place where they can't actually add what is uniquely their own. And that is the whole thing that I would offer coaches as well. When you have one of those movement marvels, when you are blessed uh, with someone who is gifted uh, in your in your room or in your huddle, 
think about how they see or perceive the world, how the problem is speaking to them, and then try to add value to how it is that they solve those problems. Try to see it from their movement systems perspective, because I would bet that there are going to be many times that you would take that famine, famine, famine feast more often than not, than just a little nibble here, a little nibble there, a little nibble there. And it just happens across a whole buffet versus, you know, Saquon busting the big one um, and getting, you know, in the same breath or being talked about in the same breath as Barry Sanders. Um, yes, he has room to grow and evolve and he will, and he will fill in those gaps. I'm, I'm hopeful or confident. I'm excited, like you said, to see. I hope that the new coaching staff allows him the flexibility and liberty, the freedom, if you will, to be who it is that, that we think that he is. Sean, I couldn't have, I couldn't have wrapped it up better than you just did there for coaches, for evaluators, Sean, people listening to this, they're saying, you know what? I, I love, I love what you guys are talking about. I'm not exactly sure what every word or every idea necessarily means. I hear information affordances, uh, dexterity. Where can I begin? Because where can I begin to unpack this? How would you recommend somebody that is listening to this and wants more? How can they begin to understand this better? What would be your recommendations to those individuals? Uh, I'll probably start with a few cheap plugs in there. Uh, obviously, footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com is my blog where I know you made the mention in the introduction. People can go. I, I use much of this verbiage, as you well know, Matt, to unpack a weekly play as the season goes on. So week by week, what I look at is the most functionally connected movement problem-solving expression or, or experience of that NFL week. Um, I use many of these ideas that we talked about to unpack it there at footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com. I would also offer, obviously, but you made the mention in regards to emergence. Uh, we are a movement skill education company that is certainly um, trying to do our part to unpack the understanding of these ideas across the masses. You know, so no matter where you are on your learning journey, we hope to have something for you. We have, you know, these movement meetups that happen uh, monthly. We have um, interactions, obviously, even if you just follow us on Twitter, um, at Emergent Movement, and movement is abbreviated to MVMT. Um, and that's also our website address, emergentmovement.com. So MVMT movement is abbreviated. I, I would certainly implore you to look there. We, we have a blog that goes on there as well. And then, of course, if you don't want uh, any uh, to accept any of my invitations for my cheap, uh, shameless plugs there, uh, there's certainly a lot of individuals such as yourself, Matt, as well as others across the community who are talking about these ideas in really practical, relevant ways. Uh, I would try to grab onto that, which what is really speaking to you, you know, sort of talking about it from the perspective that we did with Barry and Saquon. Every learner, every craftsman is sort of on this place in their own journey, right? And they have to find the information that is resonating for them and kind of take the old Bruce Lee adage or cliche of absorb what is useful discard what is not and add what is uniquely your own. There might be things that we talked about today that aren't going to resonate for people. That's okay. There will be some things that do, and hopefully you'll kind of gain some traction there and start to, to try to get, just let them see what it, what it really looks like and feels like for one's own craft. Again, whether you're a scout, an evaluator, or whether you're a coach, 
start to see where these ideas may or may not make sense for you and keep questioning them. It's okay to research your own experience and to use your own experience in those ways to as a filter sort of through these ideas, even though you and I both wholeheartedly believe in them. It's up to the craftsmen themselves to believe in it and see what gaps and holes exist within their own craft and try to fill those in those unique ways. You know, so seeking out individuals like yourself, uh, the other other people that you have coming on uh, with the summer seminar series, I would implore listeners to go back and re-listen to 2019 and 2018. I do the same probably every six months. And so I don't know how closely you follow the, the statistics for the website and the metrics, but every six months I listen to all of those all over again. <laughs> because I think that they're so, you know, they're just they're so packed with value. And that's why I'm so stoked to talk to you um, every year when it comes to this time. Well, and, I mean, that, that is same thing happens. That is that is unbelievably thank you, because that is unbelievably precious. I'm, that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish here, creating material that is absolutely forever green and forever useful. And I cannot, again, speak more highly about the course underpinnings that is offered at Emergent Movement. It not only goes into these ideas in depth, it also has a very well and well-researched list of resources that you can begin actually printing out, uh, buying or purchasing things that things that books and, and articles that you can begin kind of purchasing and understanding what's going on in your own way. Um, you know, one thing that I found was very helpful to me was early on just reading, you know, a research paper that was recommended to me by Sean or by somebody else in the community and using that as a springboard into my own understanding because to Sean's point, it has to mean meaningful for you. And Sean, I mean, I cannot thank you enough on behalf of myself and my listeners for just bringing Saquon and Barry into a, a realm of thought and understanding that I think few in the space may. And I and I can't tell you enough how incredibly authentic that was, not only in just the way you explain the players, but how you unpacked and connected their movement to their perceptions, which inherently tells us about their skill. And I, I what a fantastic breakdown. Thank you so much, Sean. And on behalf of myself and everybody, thank you so much for that opportunity. The pleasure is all mine, my friend. Thank you so much once again for having me. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you as well as any listeners out there who would like to open up any further dialogue as well. So for everybody out there, including myself, Sean, and the rest of the team at Saturday to Sunday, thank you so much for spending this time. And please stay tuned. We have a really jam-packed series waiting for you as we begin to unpack various movement marvels across the landscape of the NFL from offense to defense. So those of you defensive stalwarts will get some interesting content for yourself. Thank you so much for your time. And please join us next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday. <laughs>